I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This episode of the China Power Podcast will feature one of five debates we held about China during our 2023 conference this fall. Each debate involves two leading experts taking a different position on one aspect of Chinese power. Happy holidays and thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with new guests in January 2024. The topic that we are actually going to cover next is uh, one that's quite central to the discussion in D.C. right now about what could happen in the Taiwan Strait. And um, the proposition for this third debate is China is more likely to blockade Taiwan than invade the island in the next 10 years. As we've been, as we observe Chinese actions against Taiwan, particularly after uh, the unprecedented large-scale Chinese military exercise, after then Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, it sparked has sparked quite a bit of discussion in D.C. about how likelihood how likely is it that China may blockade Taiwan, and how should Taiwan as well as the United States think about the likelihood of blockade versus invasion. And here I'm very, very grateful that I have two very established and esteemed experts on the PLA to join us here today. Uh, I will introduce them shortly, but the first thing as we we do in all of these debates is we will have a quick vote uh, on what you think might happen, what what you think is more likely. So, yep, please. Again, this is uh, if you agree or disagree that China is more likely to blockade than invade Taiwan in the next 10 years. So as we're waiting for the poll, uh, let me introduce our two speakers. To my left, immediately to my left and arguing for this proposition is Mr. Lonnie Henley. He's a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He retired from federal service in 2019 after more than 40 years as an intelligence officer specializing in East Asian security. He served as a defense intelligence officer for East Asia, senior defense intelligence analyst for China, and the national intelligence collection officer for East Asia, among many other posts during his four decades of uh, work in the intelligence community. Arguing against this proposition is Dr. Phil Saunders, um, he's a director for the Center for the, Chinese, for the Chinese Military Affairs at the National Defense University. He previously worked at the Monterey Institute of International Studies and served as an officer in the United States Air Force. Phil also asked me to make a plug for his very excellent book, Crossing the Strait, China's Military Prepares for War with Taiwan. Um, it was published last year, highly recommended. It, I believe it's a volume of, of leading scholars on their assessment of China's preparations for the Taiwan contingency. So with that, let's turn back to the poll. Uh, We are seeing that 73% of the audience, both in person and online, uh, believe that a blockade is more likely than an evasion. And so, Lonnie, you are going first, and you have the advantage of arguing for the position that blockade is more likely. So over to you, Lonnie. Oh, sorry, before we do that, let me also show the poll from Twitter. Right. It's uh, the poll that we got today is very much on, in agreement with our polling that we got on Twitter in the last couple of days. Uh, a very large portion, almost 80 percent, believe that a blockade is more likely than an invasion. So, Lonnie, over to you. 
Well, I've got the easy part of this task, uh, partly because my work is already done for me. Everybody already agrees. But um, <clears throat> I'm going to argue that um, if there's a military conflict over Taiwan, uh, that, that will involve a blockade, absolutely. Um, and then I'm going to argue against myself that to, to set up the conditions where I think it is not the case that a blockade is more likely than an invasion, but that's a very peculiar argument. We'll get into that. Um, and then I'll finish with my, <clears throat> my premise that we have failed to prepare for this blockade, and that's a bad thing. So, first of all, um, agreeing with everything that was said in the previous panel about whether a military conflict is likely, and I agree that it is not the most likely course of events in the foreseeable future. But if, there, if the Chinese leadership decides that it must use military force against Taiwan, and um, then it, there's kind of two big categories of actions they would take. The first big category is coercive actions to force Taiwan to change some policy or some behavior or some condition that the Chinese have found unacceptable. And if they're thinking about coercive actions, then they can, they've got various kind of non-violent coercive actions, if you will, economic sanctions, um, saber rattling of the sort that we've seen twice in the last year with large exercises around Taiwan. But if they decide they must use military force in the sense of shooting and killing people and breaking things, then they've got a couple of short, a couple of small options on their, on their menu. Uh, they, can, um, <clears throat> they can seize an offshore island. They can um, do, co do punitive strikes, air and missile strikes against Taiwan, or they can, uh, can impose a blockade on Taiwan to impose economic pain. I have a hard time imagining them deciding to kill people and not at the same time also deciding to throw up a blockade. So if they're going to do a seizure of an offshore island or you know, air and missile blockade, air and missile bombardment of the island of Taiwan, they will also put up a blockade because that's a much more, um, much more overt political message to the world that this is not acceptable, whatever it is that Taiwan has done that annoyed them. So in the big category of coercive actions to punish Taiwan, there will almost certainly be a blockade if they decide they're willing to, 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 to use lethal force. The other big bin is actions to compel unification, that is to conquer and occupy Taiwan. There they have two major courses of action they can choose. One is just to impose a major blockade and hold it as long as they can. And the other is to launch an invasion. Now, the way I win this argument automatically is that if they launch an invasion, they will do a blockade first as part of that invasion. They've got to set the conditions for the amphibious landing. They've got to attain maritime superiority, air superiority, and information superiority, at least sufficient for the, the cross-strait operation to succeed. So even if, even if their primary course of action is an invasion, they will be a blockade, so I win. <clears throat> the other course of action, of course, is um, just to not attempt an invasion, but just to do a really serious blockade and hold it as long as they possibly can. Um, 
That has some advantages. It doesn't have the high risk of immediate operational failure that you would have with an, a cross-strait invasion, but it has a lot of disadvantages, such as it gives the U.S. a lot of time to marshal force, both militarily and politically, in opposition to the blockade, and it's a long, slow weapon. You've got to, you know, it takes a while for Taiwan to starve and surrender. Um, the thing, the, the, I would also say that Contrary to a comment earlier, we collectively, the United States and Taiwan, are investing quite a lot in efforts to defeat a potential cross-strait invasion. Um, there's, more to, there's more to be done on that in that regard on, on both sides, but that's been the major focus of military force development as pertains to the Taiwan Strait situation. It's been the major focus of U.S. force development for more than a decade and is increasingly the focus of Taiwan force. Well, in one sense, it has always been, and but they're, they're focusing more on the effort to defeat the cross-strait movement as opposed to defeating the force as it lands on the beach. In any case, <clears throat> we're putting a lot of effort into defeating that cross-strait movement. And there's a pretty good chance we would succeed, given the amount of effort we're putting into it, and given the incredible difficulty of that operation from the PLA's perspective. It's by far the largest amphibious operation any force had, had ever attempted in history. It's got enormous geographical obstacles, et cetera. We can go into long detail on that. <clears throat> and our planning seems to be premised on the assumption that if we defeat the landing, that ends the war. That the Chinese will find some political formula that allows them to claim a strategic victory despite the military operational outcome and declare victory and go home and, and the war's over. That might happen. I don't think it would. And I definitely don't think we should assume that it will happen. We've got to look at the possibility that for whatever reason, if, if only because at this point, we've been fighting for a month. Tens of thousands of people have been killed on all sides of this, in Taiwan especially, in China, in the U.S. forces operating in the area, in Japan. Japanese, thousands of Japanese people have died. I just can't, I can't see the Chinese deciding at that point that they're going to kind of give up and claim that they won, but give up the effort. I just think this, the, at that point, everyone is so outraged. Everyone is so, in any case, it doesn't matter. Whether it's likely or not, we should prepare for the possibility that China doesn't just quit and go home at that point. And at that point, think about it. We've been fighting for a month. China has fired off every long-range weapon it has, so have we. Um, the Chinese Navy operating in the Western Pacific has been destroyed. The U.S. Navy has been severely damaged. Um, it's questionable whether the, Taiwan, the Chinese air defense umbrella over uh, Taiwan is still intact. I think probably will, but you never know what a secret weapon the U.S. Air Force has up its sleeve to take out air defenses. You won't know until it happens. Um, but at this point, if the Chinese decide they must continue the fight, their only remaining option is 
to continue enforcing the blockade. And I'm not talking about what Dr. Ratner seemed to have in mind earlier this morning, a picket line of Chinese, fences, uh, Chinese ships in the Western Pacific. That's easy for us to defeat. What we have no way to defeat at the moment is a close-in knife fight in the Taiwan Strait to keep any cargo ships from getting into Taiwan. Because at this point, the lack of long-range weapons doesn't matter because it's a close-in fight. And, you've, and the fight has to be on the west side of Taiwan, between Taiwan and China, not on the east side of Taiwan, because the east coast ports are so small and the, the mountainous roads between them and the rest of Taiwan are so fragile that you are not going to get enough material through those east coast ports to keep Taiwan alive. Just cannot happen. Physically impossible. So you've got to come around to the West Coast ports to get cargo in to keep Taiwan alive. And at that point, you're, you're in a, an intensely contested environment, heavily mined, with your back to the Chinese coastline, trying to push cargo ships into a heavily damaged port over and over again with the Chinese forces throwing everything they still got at you from close range and remining those ports every time you turn your back. And so I think that if it, unless China quits after the first month of the war, unless the first battle ends the war, there will be a long, ugly blockade. And the military forces required to, break, to penetrate that blockade are completely different from the military forces that it took to stand back and, and sink amphibious landing ships from 500 miles out. Um, and we have not built that force. And we're not even planning to build that force. And Taiwan has not built the forces it would need to contribute to that effort to open its ports to us after they've just finished closing the ports against the Chinese invasion fleet and keep and, and make it possible for that flow of material to come in. So, as I said up front, if there is a war, there will definitely be a blockade. And if there's a serious war, we will lose because of the blockade. Thanks. Thank you, Lonnie. Uh, before I turn to Phil, I just wanted to um, quickly recap you. So you just you, you were talking about at least uh, four different blockade scenarios, right? One, a course of one to punish Taiwan. Yes. A uh, second was a blockade scenario that was aimed at unification but separate and, and standalone. Yeah. The, the third was a blockade as a first step towards invasion, and yeah. the fourth scenario that you were discussing was a blockade scenario after a faltering failed, invasion. After a failed invasion. Right. Yes. So just wanted to be clear that that, that Alani has offered four different options. Basically, uh, the opportunity that blockade could be used in peacetime, beginning of conflict, and near the end of a conflict. Thank you. Okay, well, I, I feel like this is heads I win, tails I lose. Because I think, I think really the question is, if the PRC leadership decides they have to use force, are they willing to do an invasion or not? And is a blockade a substitute for that? So, yes, it might be part of the preparation, just like a fire strike campaign would be. It might be a fallback if the invasion has failed. But I think the question we're really concerned about is, is, is it an alternative to an invasion? 
So that's what I'm going to kind of tackle. I'm going to talk a little bit about what I see as the decision calculus, pros and cons of a blockade, pros and cons of an invasion, and give you a conclusion on why I think in some ways the invasion's a better choice. Um, so I use the basic deterrence calculus. It's whether the benefits of action against Taiwan outweigh the costs and risks, including the costs of inaction. And so that cost of inaction covers a Taiwan declaration of independence. It just covers the U.S. Uh, doing something to officially recognize Taiwan, actions that really would force a CCP leader to act. I think those are relatively unlikely uh, if we're smart with our policies. You could also think about circumstances where the trends are moving against China and they act uh, to act before a window of opportunity is closing. But even that would really be a war of choice. And so if it's a war of choice, I think there's a two-step calculus. Uh, the first is a military step. The second is a broader political step that takes other factors into account. And if we're looking at the military pieces, we want to ask, what's the PLA's ability to achieve its objectives? So do they have the military forces, the hardware, the training to execute the campaign? What's the strength and capability of the opposition force? And is that just Taiwan or is it Taiwan and the U.S.? How much time, if the campaign goes as planned, would it take to achieve decisive results? What are the expected costs in terms of losses of men and equipment? And expected is what you, you factored in. That's what I'm going to pay. But you also have risks. Uh, and those could be that the losses are a lot higher than you think, um, that the military operation might not succeed, or it might escalate into a much wider or more violent war that is either horizontal or vertical escalation. So I think these are the military pieces. Even if the military answer looks relatively good, though, the decision is really going to be made by the CCP leadership, probably Xi Jinping. And that calculus is going to include a much wider range of domestic and international costs and benefits. So they'll be looking at the diplomatic costs. They will be looking at the economic costs of boycotts, sanctions, and the loss of commerce while a war goes on. And obviously those increases the longer you go. Uh, the political factors, where does it leave China positioned at the end of the day? What does that mean for other goals like raising the living standards of Chinese people? Um, and I think because of that, the CCP is not likely to do a bolt from the blue. They are going to mount a public campaign on why this is justified. And they'll do that both to mobilize their own public and their own military behind this, but also to reduce the international costs. They're going to find a way to blame Taiwan and or the U.S. And so that political campaign is part of this. So I think the point is that a go answer at the military level doesn't necessarily translate into a go answer at the political calculus. And then just to preview the argument, a blockade absolutely is less challenging than an invasion for the PLA in military terms, but I think the balance of costs and benefits is less appealing at the political level. Okay, so how does a blockade work? Uh, depends on the type, and there's been very good work done here at CSIS looking at a variety of blockades. Uh, from ones that don't use a lot of force to the kinds of things that uh, Lonnie is talking about, which is a much more kinetic, violent, violent blockade that's going to include airstrikes on, on uh, Taiwan's ports that will we'll, we'll do a lot. And so depending on that type, it's going to restrict the flow of energy, especially oil and gas, goods inputs, goods ex, uh, exports, 
uh, the flow of people and even the flow of information because one of the tools in the PLA tool bag is an information blockade where they try to cut off Taiwan's internet and space links to the outside world. And this imposes increasing costs as your stockpiles are drowned down, as your economy crumbles to a halt, rationing starts to affect what businesses can stay open and the livelihoods of people. And the notion that is over time, those costs increase and the target will eventually make concessions to end the pain. Um, if we're talking these kinetic blockades, well, that's going to include precision air and missile strikes on ports, on your container facilities, on your airfields, on your communications hubs to increase the effectiveness. This starts to look like a fire strike campaign. This starts to look like a bombing campaign. And we know some of the political negative side effects are that is it rallies the population to support the government and it increases the will to resist. So a kinetic blockade that's using a lot of this stuff is going to look a lot like a bombing campaign and have some of those same counterproductive uh, effects. Okay, so the chief advantage of the blockade is the PLA can do it. Much better capability to implement it than an invasion. There's limited Taiwan stockpiles of energy and food, so that's a weakness. You might think you might not have to hold it for too long. Uh, they can rely on mainland-based missiles to limit access to Taiwan's ports on the west side. So you can do a lot of this not using aircraft, not using ships, but using cruise missiles and surface-to-air missiles. If it's a more limited conflict, that make it might make countries... Um, uh, well, it, it, and, it, and that would force the U.S. and Taiwan to decide, do they want to escalate to mainland strikes and, and that kind of area. There's some significant drawbacks, though. The kinetic forms of a blockade are a clear attack on Taiwan. That produces much the same costs as an in invasion in terms of diplomatic costs, economic costs, sanctions, political costs. It triggers probably the Taiwan Relations Act in, in that it's an effort to resolve the situation using force. Um, um, the less kinetic it is, the less effective it is. And the time required is time for adversaries to organize a political coalition, enact sanctions, and move military forces, uh, whether that's from Hawaii, whether that's from CONUS, whether that's from other theaters. Um, and it's unclear whether and how long it'll take a blockade to achieve decisive results. Those are the prospects for a really extended campaign that goes a long way out. It's also worth remembering that a PRC blockade on the, on the Navy uh, is also going to significantly curtail shipping traffic to China, either through the mechanism of insurance costs or because it's an active war zone that nobody wants to sail through. Uh, and it also invites a symmetrical policy response of a blockade, a broader blockade against China itself. That's a logical, uh, symmetrical response that people would say is justified. Okay, so that's some of the pros and cons of the blockade. Uh, for the invasion, absolutely, it is a very challenging military operation, but it offers the prospect of a decisive victory. If you can pull off an invasion, you are in physical control of Taiwan, and you can dictate what happens next. And it also potentially, if you're an optimist in the PRC, uh, offers the prospect of a rapid, decisive victory if Taiwan defenses crumble that presents the U.S. with a fait accompli before the U.S. can really get its forces there. That's not an option with a blockade. It takes time to work. It gives the U.S. time to respond. Now, partly we changed this question a little bit because if we said, could they do it today? The answer would be no. They're, they lack some of the capabilities and training. They don't have 
the airlift and sea lift they would need to translate uh, transport invading forces. They don't have the joint training to make all the pieces work together with the delivery, invasion, and support forces. There's a limited logistics ability to support and resupply troops once they're on the island. And there's an uncertain ability of the PLA to deter U.S. intervention and conclude an invasion before the U.S. forces arrive in strength. But that said, if that's the case today, the PLA is working very hard to remedy these capabilities and training gaps, and they'll likely have at least an initial operating capability sometime over the next decade. Uh, their target goal is 2027. I don't know whether they're going to make that precisely. But at a certain point, they will have enough to feel that they can do this. They can execute the campaign. And that's why it's worth thinking about what is the decision calculus. Uh, the pros of an invasion, potential for a decisive outcome if the PLA can execute it, possibility of a quick victory if Taiwan collapses, increased chance to do it before the U.S. can respond. Uh, however, they have to plan for and prepare for U.S. intervention, and that would make an invasion much harder to do. On the other hand, you can turn that around. If the U.S. does intervene and the PLA wins anyway, that's really a decisive defeat for the United States and one that will really change the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific and the shape of regional security. So in that point of view, the potential gains are, are, very, hard, are very high if they can pull it off. Uh, the cons, Lonnie talked about a lot, very challenging, lots of moving parts. Uh, I think a greater likelihood of U.S. military intervention and maybe a wider war, maybe an extended conflict, maybe escalation. If it fails, it's obvious, and then you get the tough binary choice that Lonnie talked about. Do you admit defeat, say we taught Taiwan a lesson and go home and deal with the political consequence, or do you find a way to try to continue the conflict at a lower level of violence within your capabilities? And he suggests a blockade might be that. Uh, but by that point, I've already won the debate because the PRC's already invaded. So just to... Um, they blockaded first. They blockaded first. Well, that, that's, a Weas that's a Weasley answer. So just to, to sum up this position, a blockade done violently, done kinetically, has most of the broader economic, diplomatic, and political costs of an invasion with a much lower chance of producing a decisive outcome. If Xi Jinping and the CCP do decide they're going to roll the dice on a war of choice to unify Taiwan, I think the prospect of a decisive outcome and the chance of a rapid victory might be more attractive than a potentially inconclusive blockade that goes on and on. Um, and, it, and while it goes on and on, the Chinese economy is mobilized for war. It's largely shut down. You've got a lot of people out of work. And so you have economic costs that China's decisions are imposing on itself, and those also increase over time. So the pain on the Chinese mainland also increases. Um, that said, beyond the debate, um, you know, first, Lonnie is clearly correct. We need to pay a lot more attention to the blockade possibility, and we need to do more to prepare for it because it is very challenging in some ways um, for the U.S. military. Uh, but beyond that, I think it highlights some of the challenges of net assessment of U.S. and PRC military capabilities. If we're looking at this, can they do all the things they need to do militarily to pull off an invasion? Are our new magical capabilities going to be fielded into the force uh, and stop them? 
And even if we're confident they're going to be fielded into the force and stop the PLA, does the PLA know that? What is their net assessment? And what's the potential for a war best based on a misperception of what the actual military balance is? Um, so there's something to worry about even if I am right. Lots to worry about if I'm right. Great. I think, uh, as Phil mentioned, lots to worry about in either scenario. But let me turn the floor uh, to Lonnie for a rebuttal. And I already had made started making a short list of questions, but I'm sure there will be more questions as we go into the second half of the debate. Well, it's not so much a uh, rebuttal because we're in violent agreement here. Um, <clears throat> I knew I persuaded you. On, the, on this, um, this issue of the cost to China of doing a blockade, um, a lot of the discussion around we could easily defeat a blockade, we get statements like that from Eli Ratner and from Admiral Paparo seem to be premised around the assumption that China doesn't want a war. And yeah, if China is doing a punitive blockade but doesn't, is not intending to go to war with the United States, then the fact that it would cost them a lot is a serious deterrent. The fact that we could sink their Navy at sea and defeat an easy blockade is a deterrent. Deterrence is strong, as Dr. Ratner said this morning. I, I strongly believe that the deterrence is as strong as it can be, both in terms of you are likely to fail, deterrence by denial, and it's going to cost you a lot more than you can achieve, deterrence by punishment. Deterrence is strong. That's, if, if this were easy and cheap, they'd have done it long ago. Where deterrence breaks down, as Bonnie Glazer was saying, is that if they decide they must, despite the, the cost, despite the operational risk, then they will. And having made that decision, they know it's going to be enormously costly. They know it's going to destroy the Chinese economy, the global economy for decades to come. They know that it's going to be a protracted state of hostility between China and the United States, regardless of the outcome of the conflict in Taiwan. It's not a new Cold War. It's a new hot war lasting a long time. Um, if they go to war, you're not, going to con you're not going to further deter them. If they decide they must go to war, you're not going to further deter them by saying, uh, but it's going to cost you a whole lot. They got it. They understand that. So um, <clears throat> deterrence is working, but deterrence is not enough. I'm trying to get an article published centered around that thesis. Um, and, and if they've decided to use force to compel unification, they will be pounding the daylights out of Taiwan. There will be no question about it. They're not going to be holding back and, and refraining from it. Um, I think that was all I had to say. Before, uh, sorry, before we turn to Phil, could you, um, we've talked a bit about sort of the more punitive, the, the more violent blockade. Could you actually sketch it out a little bit for folks who haven't read some of your writings? What that actually involves. The punitive or the... the, uh, the sorry, the, the more violent... The more kinetic. kinetic. Yeah, kinetic the more blockade. kinetic blockade. Yeah. Well, I think that a, a punitive blockade would still be kinetic. They're still going to be shooting things. But a, a war to unify Taiwan... With the, with the mainland is, first of all, it's going to involve whether or not they decide to invade. It's going to involve the 
air and maritime and information blockade of Taiwan. They've got this, they cannot afford a Ukraine scenario where Western forces are able to just keep pumping material in. Luckily, there's a big ocean in the way, and it's real close to the, the war is real close to China. So they will absolutely must shut down the flow of material into Taiwan. Um, but for military operational reasons, as well as for political, psychological deterrence reasons, uh, not deterrence, uh, compellence reasons. Um, so they will, on the achieved maritime superiority, if they've decided not to invade, they'll just go ahead and destroy all the ports, destroy all the airfields, destroy all the communications. If they want to invade, then they'll refrain from attacking some of those facilities because they want to use those facilities. Um, they will also shut down air traffic in and out of Taiwan. And that's relatively easy for them to do given the enormous and extremely sophisticated air defense array that they have along the coastline opposite Taiwan. They have air defense systems that can reach all the way across the island. And you, you can, we can, U.S. can certainly sneak stealth fighters and stealth bombers through that. You're not going to get cargo jets through that, I guarantee. Um, so there is no, no cargo coming in by air until and unless we can take down that air defense array. And like I said, that is the biggest and best air defense array anywhere on the planet. And um, like maybe... Maybe we've got secret weapons that'll take it down. I don't know. But nothing I know of is going to take down that array. Um, so Chinese continue to enjoy air superiority of the island, which means that when they run out of missiles, the PLA Air Force can run up and down and freely and do whatever it wants in Taiwan. So they're continuing to bombard everything in Taiwan with their Air Force after they run out of missiles. And then the information blockade. Um, Taiwan's not going to have any cable communications, either because they do the hard thing of cutting cables underwater or because they do the easy thing of hitting the easily identified mm -hmm. landing point Fixed where that cable points. comes ashore. It's one little building. Boom. Done. Um, or the even easier thing, most of those cables run through Shanghai anyway. So you go walk up and push a button. Um, also physically destroying communication mechanisms in China, in Taiwan rather. Um, also destroying the air, the overhead assets that U.S. and Taiwan depend upon for domain awareness. So um, whether or not they are doing a blockade, I mean, sorry, are doing an invasion, they'll do all of those things. And then if they don't do an, a, a, a landing, they'll just keep doing those things for as long as it takes. And U.S. forces, like I said, we can, we can sink all their ships in the Western Pacific. Big deal. That doesn't get cargo into ports. And so either from the outset or after the invasion fails, it's a blockade. And so that is the main battle of this war. It's not the first battle. The first battle is to defeat the landing force, to sink the, the amphibious fleet. And we, sh we can and must win that first battle. But the rest of the war is a blockade. And if we can't win that, then we can't win the war. So I, I anticipated some of this because I've read Lonnie's article, which I commend to you. And, you know, and I'll start with the point that 
what he is talking about is is a very violent military campaign that is going to involve uh, missile strikes, airstrikes, a lot of violence, a lot of things blown up on the island, certainly people killed on the island. That's an attack on Taiwan. And it, it is likely to trigger the same kind of sanctions, diplomatic pressure, all of those costs that would come along with an invasion. So, you know, you get all of that all, all of those higher level political and economic costs uh, if all, all you're doing is a blockade, because it's a really violent, violent act of war. Um, I think then the question is, you know, is that decisive? You know, for a blockade to be decisive, it has to cut off enough traffic that, um, you know, that the country just can't, can't survive under those conditions. It's a lot easier to do with an island. That's one of the things the Russians found out is Ukraine has all these land borders and you can't cut them all off. Uh, but Taiwan is very, very differently situated and you've got to get ships through there or you've got to get planes through there. Uh, there's no bridge, uh, although they're talking about building a bridge from Shaman, but um, so, so there's the potential for a blockade to be more effective. But the, the history of it is it just takes way, way, way longer that uh, people put, put themselves on rations, they, they eat bitterness, um, and they're able to last for a lot longer than, than you would think. Um, and to me, that makes it not such a good outcome. It gives time to mobilize that coalition. I think it would be very, I, I, I am persuaded by this logic that, you know, defeating the blockade is not about sinking Chinese destroyers that are interdicting freighters or tankers. Um, you know, it's going to be that last 10, 10 nautical miles when you're trying to get stuff into port. Um, and that's got to go through a gauntlet of PRC anti-ship cruise missiles. Um, and the only things moving on that water are going to be targets. Um, so I think that's going to be really, really challenging. I don't think that's something we've quite got our head on, although we did a, did a simulation here about two years ago where we kind of thought through some of this and was like, boy, this is a lot harder than it seems. And I was persuaded that, and, and Lonnie went and wrote a great article on it. Um, but I come down to it, if you, if you get to the point where you decide – Force has to be used. Unification has to be achieved. I still think the invasion is the way you're going to go because a blockade is not fast enough. It's not decisive enough. It amplifies costs rather than reducing them. Uh, and at the end of the day, you're not sure it's going to work. And so you've paid all that cost. You haven't got the island. Uh, you can keep trying to do it for a while, but indefinitely. And remember, likely the Chinese economy is shut down as well. I, I just don't see that as a very attractive option for a PRC decision maker. If I'm sitting in the PLA chair, I like a blockade because we can do it. And, and the invasion is, yeah, we think we can sort of do it, but a lot could go wrong. And a blockade is a much surer thing. But if I'm sitting in Xi Jinping's chair, it doesn't look so good because it's not decisive and it costs too much. Thank you. Uh, let me start off with a couple of questions before opening it to um, Q&A from the audience. So one question I had was actually going back to a, um, a line, uh, line that you mentioned, which you described what ASD Eli Ratner, uh, his 
the, the blockade that he outlined as a, a, a picket line type of blockade. Could you, could you spell that out a little bit more and what, why you've talked about, spent your time talking about a kinetic, a much more kinetic blockade versus that type of blockade? When most people talk about a maritime blockade, they, what the model they have in their mind is the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis or the Battle of the Atlantic in World War II or the British Navy blockading the coast of France in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, that is, you have a force at sea which is intercepting shipping and turning it back or sinking it on the spot. You have German U-boats trying to sink the, the merchant ships crossing the North Atlantic. Um, and given the relative capabilities of the U.S. and the Chinese Navy, I am quite confident that we would sink their fleet quickly. That if they tried to put destroyers um, in a picket line out east of Taiwan to stop cargo ships and force them to turn back, those destroyers would be on the bottom of the ocean. Not a problem. The U.S. Navy would really enjoy that fight. Um, but that doesn't get the cargo in. When, after you sink the Chinese Navy and you're able to sail 5,000 miles across the ocean, you still got that last 10 miles into Kaohsiung Port or into New Taipei Port or Daichung Port. And that's around on the west coast of the island, close to China. And the, China, the PLA has bombed the daylights out of those ports, so they're not really very functional. They have mined the entrances to those ports, um, and they're sitting back with whatever they've got left, which is all the short-range stuff they couldn't use in the first month of the battle, but they're still good enough to sink a cargo ship that's maneuvering slowly as it tries to get through the minefield to get into Kaohsiung Harbor. And... Killing that cargo ship is not hard. Protecting that cargo ship is really, really hard. And so the blue force, in order to succeed in this battle, has to, first of all, be ready to fight in a close-in fight with, a, with uh, weapons coming at you from many different directions. Um, the U.S. Navy is a lot happier standing back 300 miles and, and sinking things. Um, getting in there in tight and fighting that kind of close-in, I call it a knife fight, that's different. That requires different weapons, different concept of operations, different ships, different kinds of ships. And then you've got the minefields. You've got to get through that minefield to get into the port. And every time you turn your back, the China's got fishing boats and old submarines or whatever else out re reseeding that minefield. So you've got to Clear minds, and we don't have nearly, not by a factor of a hundred, enough mine clearing capacity for that task. So um, that's what I mean by the close-in blockade. The picket line blockade is easy to beat, and when U.S. officials express confidence that we can beat a Chinese blockade, I think that must be what they have in mind. But that doesn't get cargo into port. I don't want to be too pessimistic here about what the United States can or cannot do, but um, maybe on one question related to what we were talking about here is um, when we look at a very uh, kinetic block, is either for uh, Phil or Lonnie, how, as we look at the escalation dynamics, are we sure that a kinetic blockade would not 
automatically lead to innovation as we see escalation on both sides. Because we've been talking about as if mm-hmm. China can maintain a kinetic blockade without that going into a larger war. What What is your assessment in which escalation on the U.S. and or Taiwan's end could make this a kinetic blockade into an actual invasion? Mm. So this is probably the point where I should have said earlier where these are my own personal views, not those of the Department of Defense and certainly not those of the Navy or the, or the Air Force. Um, so, so part of it is what's happening on the oceans and in the airspace. And if there are active fighting going on, the Chinese will lose a lot of ships and planes, the U.S. will lose ships and planes. And we will look at the things on the mainland that are controlling them, that the surface-to-air missiles, which are probably one of the biggest threats we're facing, cruise missiles, which are one of the biggest threats, and say, we can't let those things stay up and operate. We've got to go out of, after the radars that target them, the command and control systems, and the systems themselves. And that gets you pretty quickly into mainland strikes. So what might have seemed, you know, again, if you're thinking a Cuban missile crisis kind of blockade where it's all happening off the island, uh, I, I think the incentives pretty quickly are, are to translate into a war that has strikes going on in the mainland. That's escalatory. And does the PRC feel a political need then to find ways to strike uh, against U.S. targets or U.S. territories or Japan, which is probably enabling some of this or hosting some of this stuff? Uh, they don't have a lot of conventional strike capability against CONUS now, but if we're talking out five or ten years, there probably is some. Uh, and let's say they do that, or they use special operations forces or some way to strike back just for the political reasons that we are striking their homeland and they feel the need to strike back. Well, now that's that's an escalation conflict. Does that bring NATO in? It's an attack on U.S. territory. Um, so I think you have those kinds of escalation potential. It's also worth remembering that Taiwan has offensive capabilities of its own. They have ballistic missiles, they have cruise missiles, and they have aircraft, all of which are capable of striking the mainland. And it may well be the case, depending on what's going on on the island in terms of strikes, uh, that they feel the need politically to retaliate for that. And so it might be Taiwan that fires the first shot at the mainland. Does that create an escalatory dynamic? So it's, it's not necessarily clear that if it starts out as a low-level blockade, it's going to stay that way. Or if it starts out as a kinetic blockade, that it's not going to escalate into exchanges of airstrikes and missile strikes, whether it's PRC that initiates that, whether it's Taiwan that initiates it or whether it's the U.S. that initiates it, for operational necessity for the operational fight. Um, so I think you know, there is significant escalation potential, even if it is just a blockade. I, I understood your question to be slightly different. Uh, I understood you'd be asking, if they start off on a course of action which is focused on the blockade, at some point, will they do an invasion just because it becomes you know, a good opportunity to do so, as opposed to starting out with that intention? No? Okay. I think my question was more of whether the escalation dynamics would force them to do so, even though that was not their original intention. Um, I'm not sure the escalation dynamics would force them to do so, but I do think that as the blockade drags on, 
um, it becomes um, easier and easier for the Chinese to mount an invasion if they haven't done one yet. Mm -hmm. And so I, at some point, unless we can break the blockade, at some point the PLA is on Taiwan and in control. And different issue was alluded to earlier, if we fight and lose a war over Taiwan, it's not good for our political situation in the world. Um, nobody is going to feel very confident about the U.S. security guarantees after we have just failed to stop a client state from being invaded, occupied, and conquered despite everything we could throw at it militarily. I think we should... If, we're, if we are willing to get into that war in the first place, we must win it or else we have destroyed our own place in the world. Okay, with that, uh, let me open it up for, uh, <laughs> for questions from the audience. So I see two here and then we'll go over there in a second. So these two here. You'll need to use it for the online audience. Check. Uh -huh. Here we go. Hey, uh, my name is Brian, and uh, forgive me, I'm a recovering Marine Corps officer uh, who spent some time in the Pacific. Um, so um, I'll, I'll, be, uh, I'll be honest in, in my cards here. I do kind of see the invasions more likely. I think when you look at Taiwan specifically, a blockade makes sense. But when you expand that aperture about 100 miles, you start looking at the Senkakus. Um, and it just makes sense from a military's perspective. You, you need to control it all. And I don't think you can really do that effectively with, with the blockade. Um, but ultimately, what I, what I think it comes down to is uh, kind of Clausewitz's conception of the, the value of the object. And so my question to both of you is, are you, are you, like, where, where does Xi Jinping's will fall into this? His will to win, his will to, to take Taiwan. And how does that, does that change your answer or does that bolster it? Hi, um, I'm Morgan. Nice to meet you. <laughs> so um, I have a question about uh, the Chinese military uh, capabilities. So I've been to Taiwan talking about like different think tanks and uh, policymakers there. And one thing that they kept telling me is that some people may underestimate the Chinese military, uh, thinking that because China did not participate in a battle since a long time ago, the, the infantry may just not be trained enough. And I was wondering what you would think about it. And also, um, we did not mention Okinawa so far, so I was wondering in, if there is any issue in Taiwan, um, what will happen, what's the first um, response from Okinawa basis? Thank you. On will to win, um this whole discussion is premised on the Chinese have decided they must use military force against Taiwan in, because it's the only avenue left to achieve unification, that nothing else is possible. So if they decide that, the will to win is baked into that consideration. They, they are risking everything they care about by starting this war. And... Um, either they have to turn an operational defeat into a strategic victory somehow with their own people, or they have to keep fighting. And that's what I worry about. Um, 
on Okinawa, yes, we can't, you, U.S. can't fight this war without using the bases in Japan, especially the bases of Okinawa. China's going to pound the daylights out of Okinawa, and a lot of Japanese people are going to die in the process. Even if Japan doesn't directly enter the war on, on the U.S. side, a lot of Japanese people are going to be killed. I'll, I will, I'll tackle that. Uh, you know, so we heard Bonnie in the previous session you know, talk a little bit about um, is it possible that Xi Jinping would be forced into this? And I agree with her answer that I don't think it's possible that he will be forced into it. He's been careful not to sort of formally set up unification as a critical goal. Uh, some PLA officers, some pundits have tried to bait him into that circumstance, and I think he's been careful to preserve a degree of ambiguity, just like Jiang Zemin was persuaded it was a bad idea to set a, a, a deadline or a timeline uh, for unification. Um, so I don't think it's something he gets trapped into by domestic politics or pressured by Chinese nationalists. The party has a lot of ability to control the agenda and stop themselves uh, from, from finding themselves in that position, not least by toggling between the goals of deterring independence, which is formal independence, which is pretty easy to do, uh, versus emphasizing achieving unification, which is a much harder goal. Um, now, is he dead set on doing this at any cost? You know, that starts to be a leader who's no longer a rational actor, who's prepared to sacrifice anything for it. That's not the picture I have of, of Xi Jinping, that you know, he seems to calculate what is it he wants and what is the way to get there. To be more aggressive, to be more assertive, to be more risk accept acceptant than some previous uh, PRC leaders, uh, but not to be irrational. Uh, and then with just respect to the other side of the military capabilities, now, so I refer you to Crossing the Strait, which goes on in great detail, and also the uh, DOD reports on China military power, which have pretty good updated um, information on this. Um, the lack of combat experience, uh, the Chinese say that's a problem for them, but I don't think it's a problem that would stop them from doing this if they felt they had to do it. Uh, and they're trying to get that by substituting other kinds of experience, much more realistic training, um, you know, setting up their own equivalent of the National Training Center where brigades go in and compete against an opposition force um, that is that is very well trained. Um, so yes, they don't have that combat experience, and yes, there are lessons you only learn from combat. Um, but I don't I don't know that that's sufficient to stop them. And they do study what others do, and they've studied what Russia and, and Ukraine have done very very carefully, and tried to derive lessons from that. Great, thank you. We're actually going to get some questions from our online audience first. Uh, yeah, so one of our questions here is uh, about horizontal escalation. And in, in both scenarios, whether it's a blockade or invasion, what's the likelihood or, or what's Beijing's thinking about this escalating to something around the Sakakos in the East China Sea or, or in the South China Sea or potentially even other areas? The Chinese talk a lot about what they call chain reaction warfare. They're... they're 
expectation that if they get embroiled in a conflict anywhere around their periphery, <clears throat> that all of their other conflicts are going to flare up at the same time. So they expect that the Vietnamese will try to take advantage of a Taiwan conflict to expand control in the South China Sea. They expect that uh, Uyghur separatists in Xinjiang will, will make a move if, if China's busy with, uh, with Taiwan. So it's, it's not so much that they will be seeking to either deliberately escalate or to prevent horizontal escalation. They just take that as a given. Uh, that's that's all correct. Um, there are choices that they they will have to make, though. If if they're trying to prevent the U.S. military from intervening, you know, so do you strike Okinawa? Yes. Do you strike bases on Japan? Yes. Do you strike Guam? Yes. Do you strike other things that you can strike? Well, that's already escalating the conflict pretty broadly horizontally, and. That's not what they want. Ideally, they want to keep this as localized and focused as possible, but it just may not be possible given um, the likelihood of U.S. intervention and the things they would want to do to, to do that. And if the U.S. is looking at attacking from other vectors, you know, then if, if you're the Chinese, do you try to pre you try to preempt it politically first, certainly. But if that doesn't work, do you start doing military strikes against the Philippines or Australia or other other places? It's a it's a really unattractive position to be in. And Bonnie is right that they do worry about that, expect it, and plan for it. Um, but nevertheless, the reality is every every bit it expands horizontally increases the costs and risks for them, and makes it look you know like less and less of a good idea to have started this thing in the first place. Okay, we'll take uh, more from the room. So let, uh, let me do three at a time this time, and then we'll get some, whoever is remaining. So here first, and then those two in the middle. Hello, Jessica Taylor. I am a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and doing my PhD at um, Princeton. It's focused on East Asia security. But before that, I was on U.S. Forces Korea staff as a geopolitical strategist, and I'm a recovering Air Force logistics officer. Um, so my questions come from, from, or my question comes from that angle. Um, and Lonnie, I very much appreciate all your discussion about logistics and making sure we can get material in. Um, but as you kind of alluded to, I think, in, in some of the other questions, I'm curious of what you all think about um, what this would look like from a U.S. participation and cooperation with allies and partners, since we don't have a NATO-type agreement. Um, and, and I really think about that with South Korea and some of the different options we would have if we were to have a conflict across the strait. So I'm just curious of what you think that architecture would look like. So uh, <clears throat> my name is John. I'm a student here at the Elliott School. Um, how certain are we um, to say that the U.S. will step in in case a war over Taiwan did happen? And also, to what extent is the war going to be? Is it going to be a limited proxy war just over the Taiwan Strait, or is it going to be a total war between the U.S. and China? Hello, my name is Lawrence Freeman. I'm a political economic analyst for Africa, and I... I support the work of China and the BI in, in, China, in Africa quite a bit. 
My question is, Dr. Sanders, uh, Saunders, you mentioned that a militarized war economy would cause massive problems for China, unemployment, et cetera. But isn't the experience on the Roosevelt in the United States exactly the opposite? The military economy built up, put people back to work who hadn't had jobs. It actually produced growth in terms of new technologies and manufacturing. So I'm not sure your calculus there is correct. Also, you mentioned that the possibility of NATO coming in because the United States is a member of NATO. That's a real dramatic expansion of NATO to now to move into a whole other area of the world. And if that is the thinking that some people are talking about in the US and the West, doesn't that confirm the narrative of Russia and China that this is where NATO is heading? And, and doesn't it help them in their propaganda for the United States to start talking about NATO in the Southeast? So those are my questions. So as regards South Korea and, and the rest of the regional architecture, um, there's, I think that South Korea will stay out of this war completely and <clears throat> that they will not allow U.S. forces to conduct combat operations from Korean soil against uh, Chinese forces. Um, some... On some American planners are more optimistic about that, but I think it's absolutely uh, a non-starter. The, the Koreans have, they pride themselves on a long history of successfully managing the China problem, which has always been there for them. And they hate the Japanese so badly. Now, um, <clears throat> the Japanese will be in this war, whether, as I said, whether they're active participants or not, they're in the war. And I think they will be active participants. But, uh, and then you look at Southeast Asia, nobody wants to be China's enemy. Even those that are, that are very likely to be seen as China's enemy, like Vietnam. But the closer you get to China, the more conscious you are that whatever else happens, China's always going to be real big and real close. And you don't want to be China's long-term enemy. So I think everyone else in the region, except possibly um, Australia, uh, except Australia will be trying to stay out of this fight. And then you get to the question of the Philippines. Um, I don't think China would hesitate to, to explain to the Filipinos in kinetic terms how bad an idea it is to let U.S. conduct combat operations from Philippine soil. And I think that the Phil I think it'd be pretty easy to get the Philippines out of this fight if they were ever willing to get into it in the first place. Um, would the U.S. definitely step in? Political question, I think yes. Okay, um, well, Jess has teed me up to uh, cite previous work. In fact, we did a joint research project with our friends at the Korean Institutes for Defense Analyses, and the results are published in the Korean Journal of Defense Analysis that asked precisely this question, what would the U.S. expect or ask of South Korea in the event of a war uh, with China over Taiwan, and what would their response be? And I basically agree with Lonnie's points that I don't think we would ask for nor expect to get the ability to fly strike missions off the peninsula. But there's a lot of other things that um, South Korea could do and that we would expect it to do, including political and diplomatic support, including participation in sanctions, possible sharing of intelligence data, 
uh, backfilling U.S. forces that deploy off the peninsula. And I think here in particular, missile defenses would be in high demand and it's going to be hard to keep them on the peninsula just in case of North Korean missile strikes when they could go to Japan or Okinawa and defend against real, actual Chinese missile strikes. Uh, one of the other things that kind of came out as we thought about this is there will be broader effects on international shipping and international commerce. And both Japan and South Korea are dependent on imported oil and gas. They are dependent on container trade. They are dependent on chips. Uh, so actually, they're very similarly situated. And there might be considerable scope for cooperation, let's say, if tankers are being routed way around Taiwan, but still need to come you know, that, that last hundred nautical miles into ports in Busan or uh, in, in Japan, you know, that I think would be a scope, uh, an area for cooperation between Japan, South Korea, and the United States. It's worth thinking about that because we could imagine it happening in a blockade scenario or an extended conflict or a bunch of things like that. So that's the first question. Uh, U.S. intervention is a political question. That'll be the president's decision. I think China hopes to keep us out, but they plan on us being in. Um, and what that would look like, um, just is just hard to say. Um, uh, Professor Friedman, um, so you, you're giving sort of the example of World War II. I, I would say it's a very different economic circumstance where the U.S. suffered from overcapacity and inadequate demand. And it was the mobilization for war that made up for that demand, obviously converted from civilian to military. Uh, but we were still coming out of the Great Depression. So that's a very different economic circumstance. As I look to what it would look like for China, so first of all, they are mobilizing from civilian production to wartime production. The army is taking control of transport and the trains. So there's a lot of negative impact on the economy for that. Uh, second, they are much more dependent on imports. Uh, obviously, oil and gas are one of those things. Foodstuffs are part of those things. There's various other components that are also important that they're dependent on. Um, some of that can go by land. Most of it travels right now by sea. And you can't really make up for the loss of the sea routes with um, land transport, whether even if it's over Belt and Road, uh, roads and train lines. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I think the economic costs of a long war for China are very large and they mount over time, especially if there is a significant cutoff of shipping lanes, plus economic sanctions. Um, and that's sanctions on both critical imports coming into China, and you can bet it will target the things that they need most, and on exports. From China. So I think, you know, very, very significant economic costs, and I don't think mobilizing for the war economy gets them out of it. The NATO point was a little bit puckish, um, a little bit puckish, but I happened to play red in a war game, and we happened to be a little bit upset that the U.S. forces were striking our homeland territory, and we found a way to strike back. And then immediately the, uh, the blue team started talking about, well, that's physical attack on the United States. Now we can invoke Article 5 with NATO. So I don't want to make too much of that. I don't really think it is all that likely. Um, 
but it did happen. You know, one of the things you do a war game, things happen that you didn't expect. Um, and I, as playing, playing red, did not expect that they were going to try to get NATO into the fight, but that's what the blue team did. So I just wanted to throw that out as a, one of those mini lessons you get from, from war games where, where players do things that you never would have thought of. And then you say, well, maybe, maybe. So I have to apologize to the person that we didn't get to. My team warned me about four minutes ago. We were two minutes from, uh, so we're already running a bit over. So, but I think we will have 15 minutes of a break so you can come up and uh, def uh, ask your question. Um, I do want to make sure we have one more minute to do a poll uh, to see if your views on this topic has changed after this debate. Um, we'll, we'll give us folks a minute to do this. Well, so like one person voting so far. <laughs> so for those who just joined us to, to participate in this poll, you scan it, it's a QR code, and then you can select it. Or you can go to the um, URL, which is pollev.com slash China Power. Okay, I think we can probably give it 30 more seconds, but it, oh, never, well. <laughs> I, I think we should uh, cut off the polls right now. <laughs> <laughs> no need for a recap. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, it seems like um, both, both of our experts debated very well. Uh, the, the playing field has leveled a bit since we started. And I think, I, I think that, that basically presents us the, the you know, very tough question of needing to prepare to defeat both APL invasion, various yes. types of invasion, sorry, the various types of blockade as well as invasion. So at least Lonnie outlined at least four different scenarios, and I think of different types of blockade. And then Phil also outlined the importance of the invasion, but also how how the intersection between um, how blockade could further escalate. So I think our defense community really has a lot to plan for. And as both of them have said, particularly on the blockade side, that's something that we're very lacking right now. So thank you both for joining us. Please give them a round of applause. Thank you.